If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. As we look ahead to the coming days and weeks, I think there's a lot maybe we're apprehensive about or or dreading, perhaps. But here's something to be excited about. Uh, Saturday, I think tentatively for now, there have been some concerns around weather, uh, marks the launch of the James Webb Space Telescope. This is a $10 billion project meant to be the successor to the Hubble Space Telescope. And if you follow these things, look, the Hubble Space Telescope has been amazing in terms of some of the images of our cosmos that it's helped yield, but also just in enhancing our understanding of our universe. And this new telescope is going to take us even further to allow us to see further and further back than previously was the case. So a lot of those questions we have about the early days of our universe, and this is going to go a long way to answering those. So there's a lot of excitement around this. Now, launching something like this into space is a delicate undertaking, which is why they want to be careful with it. Uh, But launch is expected on Saturday. Last I've heard, maybe our our guest has heard (laughs) heard something else in the meantime. But yes, Canada, look, Canada has contributed to this project. And as a result, Canadian researchers will have access to this telescope. So a lot of excitement from those involved, which include our next guest, Adam Muzzin. He is an associate professor of the Department of Physics and Astronomy at York University in Toronto. Professor Muzzin, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks. Pleasure to be here. Uh, now, am I still correct? Is, is Saturday still the, the tentative launch? Absolutely, yeah. We're okay. still go for uh, 7.20 Eastern time, which I guess for you guys in Calgary is a couple hours earlier in the morning. Yep. So I guess maybe that's 5.20 in the morning for you in Calgary. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just got an update uh, a few hours ago. They completed the rollout of the rocket to the launch pad. So the rocket is now sitting on the launch pad and it is, uh, it is really exciting. It's, it's ready to go basically in, you know, about a day and a half, it's going to be lifting off. So how do they do this? Is it like strapped to a rocket or how does this work? Yeah, well, so the, the telescope sits on the top of the rocket inside a fairing and it's, you know, it's a massive rocket. This is the Ariane 5 rocket. It's the most powerful rocket that uh, mankind has. And, uh, you know, it sits on that pad and basically they put it all together inside a, a big hangar. And then when it's all the, the telescope is attached to the end, the rocket's fueled and ready to go. They roll it out to the launch pad, um, which is where, you know, the fireworks go off. So this is the successor to Hubble and, and Hubble was was pretty incredible, obviously. So th- this is obviously sort of the next generation. I mean, I, I guess it's fair to call it a superior telescope, but, it, but it's also different, I guess, in, in some important ways. So what does this telescope give us that, that Hubble didn't? Yeah, it's, uh, I think what you said is, is very, very accurate. So 
Um, it's much more powerful. Um, the comparison you can make is the primary, the primary mirror of a telescope is what really allows it to collect light. So the bigger the mirror, the more light you can collect, the more the fainter objects you can see. Hubble had a 2.4 meter diameter mirror. James Webb is 6.5 uh, meter diameter mirror. So a much bigger mirror, which allows us to collect a lot more light. It allows us to see objects up to a hundred times fainter than Hubble, and you know, as you said, Hubble was already very powerful. The other thing James Webb does is because it's bigger, it gives us much better precision. So if you thought the images you got from Hubble were beautiful and crisp, the images from James Webb will be almost three times more yeah. detailed than what you get with Hubble. And then the last thing is it's optimized uh, to look in the infrared. And Hubble can look a little bit in the infrared, but James Webb looks much further in the infrared. And if you want to study things like the very first galaxies to form in our universe, or you want to study things like the atmospheres of young planets forming around other stars, most of the light comes out in the infrared, and so you want a telescope optimized for that. So if you put all those things together, more power, more precision, and infrared optimized, it really, it's a different animal that allows us to do all sorts of science that Hubble just can't do. Now, we, we've got some, some impressive telescopes that are terrestrial, that are, that are here on Earth, but what's the advantage of having a, a telescope in space? Yeah, there's a couple advantages. First of all is um, that uh, in space, you don't have the atmosphere blurring your images. So as good as our telescopes are here on the ground, you still get that kind of slight blurring effect from turbulence in the atmosphere. That's why Hubble, although not the biggest telescope by, by mirror in the world, um, is so much better than things we have on the ground because it doesn't have the atmosphere. And James Webb is the same. But the other thing James Webb has is because... Uh, we want to look into the infrared, the sky is very, very bright in the infrared. In fact, if you had infrared goggles on, you can see at night, right? This is mm -hmm. actually what the military uses. This is the reason you can see it, because the sky is glowing in the infrared in the same way it's glowing in the optical during, during the day. And so it's hard to look at these wavelengths of light from the ground. It's like looking into a flashlight. So when you get above the atmosphere, you get away from the infrared glow of the atmosphere, and you get a much, much darker view of the cosmos. You can see much fainter objects. You know, sometimes it's hard for us to process the, the nature of space and time. And we look into the sky at night and we see the stars. Uh, you know, we, we maybe assume in our minds that we're seeing them as they are. We're obviously seeing them as they were millions of years ago because that's how long it takes the light to travel. So the further we can see, the further back we're seeing, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And that's the whole name of the game for Hubble. As we look at these farther away things, it's really like a time machine. And, you know, if you think about you know, the way archaeologists study history, you know, they want to dig up things that are, you know, deeply embedded. You want to find the oldest artifacts you can or the oldest fossils you can. It's the same thing for astronomers. By finding the most distant stars and the most distant galaxies, it's the same kind of time machine. We, we see the past and we're able to really understand how things came to be. You know, and for myself, I'm very interested in how galaxies form. And so James Webb, allowing us to see some of the very first galaxies forming in the universe, it's an amazing, you know, time machine to really figure out how galaxies like our Milky Way got to, got to be here. And I mean, we have some understanding, obviously, of that, but there, there, is, there is a lot of mystery around, you know, certainly the formation of, of the early part of the universe and those very first galaxies. So how can this enhance our, our understanding? Yeah, well, the analogy I've been sort of giving to people is, you know, if you think about galaxies, they go through a life cycle. You know, they're not there. They form. They have midlife, you know, and, and some of them even get very, very old. It's kind of like humans, right? And we, we study, you know, the human biome and, and how humans change over their lifetime. 
And one of the things we know about humans is, you know, those, that embryonic state, right, just after conception, those initial cell divisions as, as, you know, you're developing are hugely important in the development of humans, right? And that's why, you know, we make sure women really take care of themselves when they become pregnant because all those initial stages are so important in forming, you know, people. It's the same thing for galaxies, right? Those embryonic states, when, when the very first stars are forming in the very first galaxies, we think are probably very, very important for determining what comes next, but we've never seen it, ever, right? Hubble just is, does not allow us to see back to that really embryonic state. And so we do know a lot, as you said, but we haven't seen those earliest phases, and we are so really excited to see them with James Webb. How many galaxies would you say there are? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, <laughs> to be honest with you, one of the things I've done in my career is... Uh, is uh, one of the things I'm more well-known for is actually counting all the galaxies. Uh, right? So I'm really? the guy who can answer that very, very well. Well, how about that? Um, yeah, there's something like, we think, about one to two trillion galaxies, trillion with a T, in the known universe. You know, plus or yeah. minus a few hundred million. So, you know, in astronomy, it's not the most accurate science. So there are literally now trillions of galaxies, which is a hard number to really um fathom you know if you think about earth it has seven or eight billion people there's about 10 or 12 times as many galaxies in the universe as there are um people on earth okay and, and remember that each galaxy is filled with hundreds of billions of stars so yes. the cosmos are uh unbelievably vast it's pretty mind-blowing absolutely yeah. okay so <laughs> as i mentioned at the outset and and this is the other exciting part of this is not just that we'll have this telescope but the canadian researchers yourself included We'll have access to it. So when are we going to start to see some of the first images from this? And, and when are you going to get your first crack at it? Yeah, great question. Um, so the telescope, because it's all folded up uh, on top of the rocket, it's such a big telescope has to unfold. It takes about um, a month to unfold the telescope, put all the mirrors together and have everything um, be ready to go. And so the very, very first pictures will probably be about a month from launch. Uh, but those aren't really pictures that are designed for um, doing scientific measurements, and they're not really going to be pictures probably for the public. Um, NASA and the CSA do a lot of work checking out the telescope, making sure that everything is aligned the way it's supposed to be, that the instruments are working the way they're supposed to be. Um, and so we don't actually start full science operations until about six months after launch. Now, I have maybe my fingers crossed a little bit that NASA may take some of those very early calibration images that they're taking and release a few to the public so that we can all see them. Uh, but in terms of the really beautiful kind of images that Hubble takes, these science-grade images, it's about six months from now. All right. Well, exciting times uh, on this front for sure. Adam Muzzin, uh, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Really do appreciate this. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thanks. All the best. Uh, there you go. That's uh, Adam Muzzin, Associate Professor in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at York University, a, a certified galaxy counter. Uh, and I just, <laughs> I didn't know he did that. I just kind of threw that question out. Uh, just because I knew it was a big number. Although I wouldn't have guessed that big. Because galaxies are pretty big. And that's a lot of them. So, Okay. Yeah, the universe is big. That's, uh, that's the lesson for today. And this telescope is going to give us some pretty cool images of that. Obviously, right now, with the surge in the Omicron variant, we're seeing a lot of reinfection, a lot of breakthrough infections. And already we've got good data showing us that, yeah, look, two doses of vaccine can still protect pretty good against severe outcome and hospitalization. But this variant is good at getting past our initial defenses. And so we are getting those breakthrough infections. 
Now, three doses seems uh, a lot better at uh, preventing against infection. But yeah, that's the reality right now, right? That we are seeing a lot of breakthrough infections. But there's an interesting aspect to all of that. I don't know if it's right to call it a silver lining necessarily. Uh, But as we go through this surge, maybe it lays the groundwork uh, for moving forward with a lot more robust immunity at a population level. Because we look about getting to an endemic phase, we look at kind of the end game of all of this. Maybe that's part of it. Because the aftermath of a breakthrough infection leaves behind some pretty powerful immunity. The combination of vaccination plus infection looks really powerful. As a new study from Oregon Health and Science University published in the Journal of the American Medical Association that expands on this, joining us to talk more about the findings, one of the authors, uh, Dr. Marcel Curlin, who's an associate professor of medicine and infectious diseases at the Oregon Health and Science University, OHSU School of Medicine. Dr. Curlin, thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Rob. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Uh, so tell us a bit more about when we talk, when we talk about hybrid immunity, what, why that seems to be so potent. Well, uh, just to be clear, it's those folks who have been vaccinated and then go on to get uh, natural COVID infection. Or it, it can also happen the other way. You might be infected first and get vaccinated later. Either yeah. way, your immune responses are the result of this combined exposure. And I think... Um, The underlying biology is that the way in which you get exposed to something has a lot to do with how, what form your immune responses take. And so there are antibody responses, there are cellular immune responses, which people don't talk about quite as much and which we don't measure clinically, Mm -hmm. but all of those uh, have an impact on how well you're protected from infection and from, from disease. So it's a bit complicated, but it does seem that getting exposure in these two ways by having the virus actually you know, being exposed to the virus itself and by having this sort of focused uh, immunity that comes from vaccination where you're just making the spike protein and responding to that, something about that combination seems to create a very potent immune response. I mean, there seemed to be kind of a, almost like a rule of thumb that, that an infection would sort of be seen as comparable to a dose, that infection plus a dose would be somewhat comparable to two doses and infection plus two would be comparable to three. But does, does that leave out a lot? Is, is it a direct comparison in that sense? It really is not a direct comparison because it's the vaccine, when you're, when you're vaccinated, you're getting a little messenger RNA signal that says to your cells, okay, make this one protein. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, when you get infected, the, what's happening is the virus is taking over cells and m- turning those cells into little virus factories. And of course, the, the virus has you know, a lot of pro- different protein products, uh, nine or 10 different proteins. Some of them are membrane proteins, some of them are structural proteins. So it's a much bigger you you know, kind of you're getting exposed to many more things. And also there are other sort of signaling pathways within the body that trigger immune responses. And those those are triggered by the fact that you're getting exposed to some component of a virus. And the vaccine doesn't have that. So in in a way, a vaccine uh, lights up your immune system in one way, whereas a, a virus will light it up in several other different ways, and that shapes what your immune response is like. 
You mentioned, you know, sort of the order of all of this. And, you know, I mean, I guess I have a vested interest in the question. I had COVID uh, last November and has since been uh, vaccinated twice. But does it seem to be similar when we talk about infection followed by vaccination and vaccination followed by infection? Yeah, I think it's going to turn out to be similar. We have some data on this that we've um, generated from our cohort as well. And it doesn't, as if you're talking about uh, antibody responses, which is what most people discuss when they're thinking about immunity to COVID. They measure antibodies and et cetera. The, antibody, the strength of the antibody response and its breadth, that, which we can talk about later if you like, uh, but that, that response seems to be about equivalent if you get infected first and then vaccinated or vaccinated first and then infected. Well, yeah, talk about the antibody response, because I think right now the hope with boosters or the hybrid immunity is just that we produce such an overwhelming number of, of antibodies that it's it's a good defense against Omicron. Um, but talk a bit about the, the antibody response and, and why that matters. Yeah, so, um, um, you know, the immune response is basically broken up into two major branches that the learning part of our immunity is broken up into two branches. One is a cellular response. There are these cells that circulate in our body and they recognize infected cells. They're like little police cars that circulate in the freeway and they'll recognize infected cells in our body and destroy them. And we don't, we know that they help our health, but we don't measure them that much. Everyone talks more about antibody responses and those are proteins that circulate within our circulatory system and they recognize the virus directly. And so um, these antibodies will stick on to viruses and uh, in some cases neutralize them and in other cases not, just depending. So um, the antibody response, so, so the strength of that response depends on the level of the antibodies that you're there. So the physical amount in you know, nanograms per ml, like how much is really there. And also how good those antibodies are at sticking on to the virus and, and neutralizing it. So that would be the sort of the maturity of this immune response and the, the specificity. So both of those are important variables. It, it, it does raise the question, though, about the need for booster shots. If someone has been vaccinated and gets a, a breakthrough infection or, or if they had it the other way around. And, and the challenge right now is you might have somebody who's had two doses, gets a breakthrough case that is so mild, they're not even sure whether they had it. You know, does that person need a, a booster dose? Would that booster dose add anything substantive to their immune response? Right. Great question, and we don't know the answer because um, at least we don't yet. The data we have right now are people who are fully vaccinated, so they've had two doses of an mRNA vaccine like Pfizer or Moderna or one dose of, Jan- of the Janssen vaccine, although I think in our mini-study here we, we don't have any of those guys. We just have mRNA vaccine participants. So those folks compared with those who are fully vaccinated, again, two doses, followed by infection. The, the, the question you're asking is, if we boost on top of that, do we improve responses even better? Well, maybe, uh, and it seems likely, but we don't have those data yet. I, I don't see any reason why that wouldn't help. For example, if you were vaccinated uh, a few months ago and then let's say now got breakthrough infection, would a booster in six months help? Probably so, because 
naturally our antibody responses wane over time. So if I were infected today and recovered, I would have high antibody responses maybe. And then over six months to eight months, my antibody levels in my blood will, will decline. Um, I do have a memory response, mm-hmm. which means I'll have memory B cells circulating. Even though my antibody levels are low, I'll have these memory cells circulating. And if I get exposed again, those memory cells will let me very quickly generate the immune response I had before. So I get a head start. But by getting a boost in six months, I would have those levels be high from the outset and hopefully prevent a, a recurrent infection. So I don't see any downside to boosting again later when, it, when it's right, yeah, you know, when the time is right. Yeah. Uh, in terms of yeah. you know where where this leaves us, in this this Omicron wave is going to rip through, and you know, and I think yeah. it's going to be a you know rough several weeks here. But where does this leave us at the end of that wave? If we've got a lot more of of this immunity at, at a societal or population level, uh, how does that protect us going forward? I think this is probably the most important question, and it gets to the the end game concept that people have been talking about. Um, so, what was seen here was that. Uh, when you get this hybrid immunity or the super immunity, whatever people want to call it, it's not only larger in magnitude, but it's better in quality. So if I take someone who um, had infection and vaccination and compare them to those who just got vaccination, and I take those take serum from them and look at their antibodies and how well they neutralize all of the different variants we've seen, you know, alpha and delta and beta and omicron, uh, we haven't tested Omicron yet, but what we're seeing is that the people that have higher immunity, they're much better at coping with whatever is thrown at them. So even if you were infected with Delta, you're going to be much better at neutralizing Beta or Alpha than, than if you were just vaccinated. What that means is the breadth of the immune response of the hybrid immunity is better, and we're going to be better equipped to deal with new variants coming on later. The natural consequence of that is as we get more people vaccinated around the world and as more infections happen, we're going to have an increasingly immune-competent sort of world population. And as new variants come, the next strain after Omicron, I don't know what that letter is, but when we see the next one, the virus will have a harder time getting purchase, we hope, because it's going to encounter many more people who are already more or less or to some degree protected from infection, that, that would imply that the uh, epidemic will take a downturn in its severity. We're going to have an endemic COVID problem. I think we're always going to have COVID around, but it won't be as disruptive uh, to society as it is now. We'll have fewer uh, bad outcomes. Uh, it'll look probably a little bit more like influenza. Very interesting. We'll leave it there. Dr. Curlin, appreciate the insight, and uh, thanks so much for joining us here today. Thank you so much. All the best. Uh, This is Dr. Marcel Curlin, Associate Professor of Medicine and Infectious Diseases at uh, the Oregon Health Sciences uh, University School of Medicine, uh, one of the co-authors of this study in the Journal of the American Medical Association. Looking at the impact of infection following vaccination, or even the other way around, and just how potent that, that protection is. So it represents, I guess you could say, a silver lining to the breakthrough infections we're seeing and will continue to see as as Omicron surges through. Welcome back. Well, yeah, I mean, it was a most unwelcome pre-Christmas present, not just for those who uh, were in favor of 
uh, this event center deal uh, between the city and the Calgary Flames. I think for everybody, you just thought we decided this. We'd moved on. Right, This was a done deal. Uh, turns out it wasn't. And at the moment, it seems there is no deal. I guess it was late Tuesday that we learned uh, through the mayor that the Flames had announced or the Calgary Sports and Entertainment Corporation had announced that they were backing out of the deal. We had a lot of conversation around this yesterday. We also heard from both sides, from the president and CEO of CSEC and also from Mayor Jody Gondek herself. And clearly there are some different assessments of what happened here. At the moment, it's kind of a moot point. There is no deal unless something can be salvaged. This project isn't going ahead. Now, obviously, look, I think this was important for the, the team to have a new arena. They certainly felt it was important. The city's made it clear that they believe it's important and this vision they have of, of the Rivers District and everything that would be a part of that. So in that sense, yeah, this is a very negative development from both sides' perspective. Uh, certainly for those in the construction industry, this is a big setback. The Calgary Construction Association says they're deeply disappointed by this week's developments. Joining us to talk more about it is Bill Black, president and COO of the Calgary Construction Association. Bill, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me, Rob. So were you as uh, caught off guard as as everybody else was uh, Tuesday night? I would say that would be somewhat of an understatement. It was like like you just said. Um, It was past so many hurdles and so many gates that even the experts that do a lot of these projects were saying yesterday, this kind of project doesn't go off a cliff this late in the process. It's very, very rare. Do you have any insight in in terms of what might have gone on here? I know there are issues around rising costs or supply chain issues. Do you think that was a big factor here? I, I would have expected to have seen it more you know, higher in the list. It seems yeah. to be further down the list. It's a very, very legitimate concern. There's no doubt about it. Material pricing is highly volatile. Lead times are even worse. And actually, time is always more expensive in construction than materials and delays, etc. So that that's a very legitimate concern, but it didn't seem to feature large in their overall rhetoric that they presented as their reasoning. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it feels like, you know, maybe the two sides aren't that far apart. I, I don't know if there's some, some bad feelings here or or maybe there's egos getting in the way. I don't know. I mean, how optimistic are you at this point that this can get back on track? Well, I think there, there's always a hope that parties can park their egos at the door if that is is an issue. They can sit down. I, I believe Calgarians deserve better than this. Um, if there, you know, if if there is an opportunity to sit down, Calgary needs any edge it can get to compete for companies, investment, for talent, for people to locate here, and an entertainment district that's kind of built with the catalyst of an event center is a big lifestyle driver in how the city competes against other options that are out there, and I I really think that um, there's hope that we should be asking the parties involved, get around the table and fix this. We've come very far down the road. A lot of money's been spent already getting to this point. Right. A lot of development of, of design and, and concepts and, and consulting and such has already gone, gone on. A lot of water's under the bridge. Let's sit down and make the right deal, 
get things reconciled to whatever degree they need to be, or get the full issues on the table so at least Calgarians understand. Yeah. Is there any kind of a domino effect here? I mean, do you, do you think, what, what kind of an impact does this have on the Rivers District, of the Culture and Entertainment District? Well, I think, you know, there, there, there is absolutely a halo impact of a large anchor project like this because it creates uh, a sort of multi-year project for a number of folks who are directly involved. It then allows other ideas to pencil out other restaurants, other businesses, other residential developments now become much more viable with uh, an event centre and that whole district kind of centred and built around that hub. So it absolutely has to have a domino effect on what else would have followed on mm-hmm. once it was was a reality. For a big project like this, uh, this is a massive undertaking. This this is obviously a, a huge construction impact when you look at all the jobs required and you know building this and everything that goes into that. Help us understand just how big that is. Well, you know, from from a project perspective, a job of this nature. Arenas aren't just large buildings. They're highly specialized. They're very complex. Mm -hmm. So there's a broader range of specialty trades, suppliers, and expertise involved. A project like this, according to Ernst & Young, they talked about more than 4,500 jobs being associated with this project. And certainly, if you look at other large, complex projects like the airport expansion and Calgary Cancer Centre, there can be 1,200 to 1,500 workers on site on any given day when these projects are at their peak. But then if you look at the consulting groups, architects and engineers, the general contractors and other parties, they have multi-person teams dedicated to running their part of the project. So this, this takes up a lot of employment bandwidth and would do for several years. And now these projects, these projects um, go off the table. These organizations have large teams and lots of resources that you just don't walk across the road and pick up another project to replace it. Well, it puts a bit of a cloud, doesn't it, over 2022? Because, you know, it certainly felt like this yeah. was going to be here. We we're going to see a real bounce back in terms of economic activity, construction in, in Calgary. How are you feeling going into the new year now? Well, it definitely takes some of the positivity out of the overall optimism. There was tentative optimism that, you know, there was work coming, that there was infrastructure investment, there were projects starting to happen, people were starting to see some opportunity emerge after a long, long hibernation. But this, um, and of course, the other problem is that Projects like this lead to city growth. City growth leads to other businesses, other projects, other things start to happen. Um, I would say that it, it's, it's a bit of a gut punch at risk of being dramatic. Right at the end of the year, when I think everybody was taking a bit of a catch their breath and come back and let's make 22 the year we start to climb out of this prolonged downturn. So what are you hoping to see right now? Maybe both sides need to cool off a little bit here, but what what are you hoping to see in the days and weeks ahead? I'm hoping to see people sit down and realize the implications of where this has gone over the last 48 hours and start thinking 10 years out, not 10 weeks out, and look for a way to bring this project back online 
for the benefit of, of all those involved to date and all those that will be involved in enjoying it down the road. Much more at uh, CGYCA.com, the Calgary Construction Association. Uh, Bill Black, great to have you with us here today. Uh, All the best, and uh, thanks for joining us. No, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Much appreciated. All right, take care, Bill. Uh, Bill Black, uh, President Chief Operating Officer of the Calgary Construction Association. Again, CGYCA.com. So as he said, I mean, it was a bit of a gut punch, certainly, to the Construction Association. This is going to be a big, big project. You know, their estimate, or based on what Ernst & Young had prepared as an estimate, 4,700 full-time jobs created during the construction phase of uh, these projects. You know, the event center, everything else in this culture and entertainment district. So you do wonder what the domino effect is. I mean, if the arena or the event center is not going to go ahead, what does that mean for everything else that was kind of supposed to go up around it? And so, yeah, look, I mean, I... I Feel and have always felt that this was uh, a good deal for the Calgary Flames and the owners of the Calgary Flames uh, to get this new event center that they would operate and profit from to get the city to contribute a, a large amount of money to it. But the city's put a lot of eggs in this basket, too. The whole idea of the Rivers District and, you know, with the BMO Center expansion and all of that just kind of all coming together. A lot of that rests on the event center being there. So it'll be interesting to see where this all goes from here. I, I, look, I, I, I think both sides do need to put some egos aside here and figure this out. I, I do think Calgarians deserve better. I might have my own opinions as to where maybe more of the blame lies at this point, and maybe you do too. But I think that given that a deal was there, given that there seemed to be some certainty that this was going to move forward, Maybe there is an onus on both sides to to figure this out. Or if it's not going to happen, then just level with Calgarians. It's not going to happen, and here's why. And here's what this could mean. Now, the Flames for now say they're going to play in the uh, Saddle Dome. Okay, till when? You guys have been really clear for a very long time that that was not sustainable. You could not stay there. It was just not going to work. I mean, don't, don't turn around and tell us that, oh, well, maybe it will after all. Who knew? You know, I think people are smarter than that. Yeah, it's fine now. You can stay there for now. But don't try to tell us that you've just decided that that's your plan is to stay there. So be honest. What is, what is the plan here? What is the thinking? Level with Calgarians from the city's perspective. Level with Calgarians. What's the plan now? What happens to the uh, Rivers District and the Culture and Entertainment District? Is it possible the city would just go on its own and build this and just kind of hope for the best? And so who needs to step up here? There are ways of coming to an agreement, ways of adjusting this deal uh, that could work. Maybe this ends up falling to uh, all of you, not the taxpayer necessarily, but the users of this facility. There is a facility fee that's a part of this, and the city's taking a, a cut of that in lieu of the the team paying rent. Maybe that's a win-win for the city and the flames. We'll bump up that ticket tax, and that will cover some of these uh, cost issues we've run into. I don't know if that's an ideal way of resolving this. It just feels to me like there are perhaps some solutions there for the taking. (laughs) 
certainly politically, uh, 2021 has been a challenging year for Premier Jason Kenney. Obviously, a lot of it's uh, connected to the pandemic and his handling of the pandemic. The slow response to the fourth wave, I I think, certainly hurt him politically. Uh, But through the year, trying to navigate this divide in Alberta between those who think his government's not doing enough and those who think they're doing too much and, you know, finding it hard to keep really either side happy. I don't think it's the only issue uh, that the premier is facing. And I think there's concern within his own party, you know, from the grassroots about just how much of a grassroots party this really is. Going into 2022, obviously, the premier is dealing now with a potential fifth wave. It's facing a um, leadership review in April. The prospect of uh, Brian Jean landing in the UCP caucus uh, following an upcoming by-election, which we assume will happen soon. I think has to happen by March uh, up in Fort McMurray, Lac La Beche. And then there's, you know, just uh, less than a year and a half from now, a provincial election. New poll out uh, from uh, Nanos has the NDP uh, 19 points up on the UCP. So can Kenny come back from all of this, survive the Brian Jean challenge, win the leadership review and triumph in the next election, become the first premier since Ralph Klein to win re-election? Our next guest thinks he can. Kevin Menzies, former director of communications for the UCP and as a campaign strategist with Crestview Strategies. Evan, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Hey, Rob, thanks for having me. So, I mean, the year comes to an end now, obviously, with the premier yet again having to, uh, you know, confront COVID and, and pandemic restrictions. And, and certainly, I think that has impacted his political situation. Where do you put the, the premier politically, I guess, as this year draws to a close and, and the challenges he's facing? Yeah, it's, uh, it's a really good question. He's, uh, he's certainly in a much better spot than he was a few months ago. Uh, he had a he had a positive uh, recent AGM in November with party members where there were some good outcomes for him that there's a good reason for him to feel momentum from. Lots of good news on the economics front on the economic front here in Alberta as well. And uh, there's there seems to be a little bit less uh, disruption internally in caucus as well. A little bit more internal discipline on that front. So he's he's definitely got a, a, a bit more swagger in his step these days. But as you mentioned, uh, there are challenges, of course, that, that are just around the corner. We've got the Omicron variant. Uh, we've got Brian Jean, who's making a lot of noise right now as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but every uh, my eyes and uh, everyone else's eyes within the party and uh, within the broader conservative movement uh, have a pretty close eye on that April leadership review because it will obviously solve a lot of problems for uh, for the premier if he comes out successful. But if it... Uh, if it doesn't come with a clear mandate, then obviously raises more questions about his future. Where do you think these problems stem from in the first place, though? Because, look, I mean, obviously, Jason Kenney came in a real tour de force in, you know, winning the leadership, romping the victory in the election. Uh, and, you know, a couple of years into this mandate, you know, things have, have not gone well. The pandemic's obviously played a huge role in, in that. But what do you think it is within the party or within conservatism in Alberta that's that's led to these challenges for Jason Kenney? Yeah, I, I've had a lot of conversations about this recently. I, I think, you know, Alberta, uh, a lot of folks say Alberta is a pretty tough place to govern, and it certainly is. I think Alberta's uh, Alberta Conservatives have a, uh, well, Albertans in general as well, have a, have a pretty um, high expectation from their government, and they'll, let, they'll be loud and noisy about it when they're falling short. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think there's also a strain in Alberta Conservatism that is uh, inherently contrarian, they uh, they're they're never quite fully satisfied with how things are progressing, 
and uh, they're they're quite noisy about it as well. So that that presents its own unique challenge. Uh, it's it's been a part of Alberta conservatism for for decades. I mean, Ralph Klein, I think in two thousand four, uh, and the Alberta Alliance, uh, they picked up the seat in southern Alberta with Paul Hinman. Um, obviously, conservatives look back on Ralph Klein's tenure with with quite a bit of fondness and uh, and nostalgia. But he he faced his own problems on the right flank at Stelmac, and obviously the rise of the Wild Rose Party as well. So. Um, Alberta Conservatives are, are loud and noisy, and obviously the rise of COVID and uh, a lot of external challenges as well, uh, thinking of Justin Trudeau and the federal government uh, being one of them, have put a lot of uh, pressure for uh, on Jason Kenney to uh, try and uh, appease them, and uh, that's cr- created internal fractures as well. So that's, that, that to me is one of the biggest challenges on, on the Alberta right right now is how to keep that whole tent together. Yeah. What, what do you make of the Brian Jean factor? I mean, I, I think Brian's tapped into some of that or, or maybe still has some following from his time as, as Wild Rose leader. I, I think there is something personal maybe at, at some level motivating this and whatever animosity exists between him and Jason Kenney. But uh, what do you make of, of him as, as a threat or as a factor? How, how serious a challenge does this represent? Well, well it's certainly unorthodox. <laughs> I, can't, I can't think of an example ever where someone's already uh, put their name forward for leadership uh, in the party while the premier's still sitting in that position and mm-hmm. uh, fully intends on continuing. Uh, so it's, it's, it's unorthodox and it will be interesting. I think one of the challenges Brian faces is he's been um, perhaps too personal in his criticism. Um, there's obviously some personal animosity from the last leadership race. Um, and I, I, I think there will be a large contingent of party members who will look at that and not be particularly pleased with some of the, uh, with some of the comments Brian's been making, and not so much maybe the comments, but the tone of the comments. So I think Brian, if he wants to be successful in the next couple of months, he'll have to be seen as more of a uniter. And I just think in general, parties don't like seeing someone carrying the knife and trying to put it in the leader's back. Uh, perhaps they like to see it be done a little bit, <laughs> a little bit less transparently, I suppose. But I think that'll be one of the challenges for Brian. Listen, Jason's uh, Jason united the party. He obviously brought the, gov- uh, the party to government in 2019. Um, he's got a lot of what I would say silent members who haven't necessarily been poking their heads up very much, but they came out uh, at the November AGM. They voted for folks who were supportive of the premier to be on the party board. So there, there is a large contingent of, uh, of, of party members and conservatives who are certainly sympathetic to Jason and uh, uh I will watch over the next couple of months here, but I think they've. Uh, I think it's likely that they'll come out and make uh, one last final fight for for the premier uh, at the uh, April leadership review. Yeah, and, and that's obviously a crucial vote. And I mean, a lot can happen between now and then. I mean, I think we understand the stakes. I mean, if he loses the leadership vote, then that's that's that. If you know, if he wins it handily, I think he puts a lot of this behind him. And you know, maybe there's you know some degrees of of victory or defeat in between there. What, what does he need? What what would be you know a fatal blow on the other side, do you think, to his leadership? Uh, yeah, I, I, there's a few, well, there's a few things. The, the, the Zonicron variant will, uh, I think, test um, specifically the conservative flank in Alberta over the next few weeks. Uh, I mean, right now, I, I would say that Alberta seems to be the only province that is proceeding a little bit more cautiously in the hope that the uh, what, what we're seeing internationally on the variant is that it's less severe, yeah. and so bringing that into play. Um, but we've seen COVID um, bite Alberta 
you know, on the backside a few times uh, when trying to make these evaluations. So we'll see. They will certainly test uh, the uh, the metal of, of the caucus internally, especially to see how, what measures are needed in the next couple of months. Um, so I, to be honest, I think that's the biggest thing. Um, but uh, outside of that, I mean, to be successful, they'll have to make sure they doesn't lose. Uh, J- Jason's always struggles when he gets uh, a little too bookwormish on, on COVID. Mm-hmm. He needs to make sure that he's really focused on the economy and outcomes. He can't lose focus on that. It's, it's been his bread and butter. And he's certainly been stronger when he's been focused on it. So even through this, Omicron variant, he, he can't lose focus on that. And he also has to keep looking for practical results. I, I did hear or I did read a few uh, year-end interviews with him where he talked about, you know, while there's lots of great economic news and, and reasons for optimism that we need, we, that the party and the government can't lose sight on on uh, ways to make life more affordable for Albertans, especially during huge inflationary pressures that everyone's facing. So uh, I think uh, they've, they've, he's accomplished a lot of the 2019 platform. Uh, if he'll have to start uh, casting out a vision for the 20 for the vision for the province beyond just uh, uh, what the 2019 election offered and into 2022 and obviously beyond the 2023 election and have uh, be able to cast a, a, a bigger vision for Alberta uh, moving forward. Yeah, and that's something I'm curious to see. I mean, you know, if we, we assume that things are going to improve on the pandemic front and if we assume that Kenny gets through the, through the leadership vote, how does he set the party up for the next election in 2023, which, I you know, I think is going to be a competitive election. I mean, you know, the premier was musing recently about maybe going back to the flat tax. I'm, I'm curious if that's something, you know, he wants to, to make as a, maybe a centerpiece of a campaign or, you know, what kind of vision of conservatism does he want to put to Albertans uh, in campaigning for re-election? Any sense from you? on you know maybe which way that that might go or which way it should go yeah it's uh i mean there's a there's a lot of time between now and then um mm-hmm. uh, yeah I, flat flat taxes will, will be interesting i think obviously the, the budget would have to be uh in a much better position than it has been i i think there's reason for optimism to believe that there will be some room on the spending front uh if energy prices stay uh where they've been uh, as, as that will increase revenues not just in royalties but um across income tax uh revenue portals as well so yeah I, you know I, I think anyway conservatives benefit uh in campaigns when they can talk about affordability and ways to lower the cost of living and contrast that against their opponents in the ndp uh, the ndp will be uh, i anticipate will be talking about raising things like uh, the corporate tax rate um, and they'll, they have to be really careful, uh, especially in the next month or next year and a half here. Uh, we, I've, I've noticed a bit of a tendency over the last uh, few months where they're, they're drifting leftward on economic policy, perhaps out of uh, the economic mainstream of Alberta. I thought Rachel Nolly, while she was in government, did a, uh, she, she did a lot of work to keep the party closer to the centre on the economic front. Mm-hmm. But I think they'll give Jason Kenney and the UCP a lot of open room if they keep doing things like um, having their provincial council and MLAs vote against the coastal gasoline pipeline. If they keep talking about totally banning coal development in the province, it will leave an open question in the minds of voters about what exactly the next term of an NDP government would look like. So anyway, that uh, Jason Kenney and the, the UCP or whatever iteration it is by May 2023 uh, can do to contrast against that, uh, I think will give them a lot of success. It's going to be an interesting year. Uh, we'll leave it there for now. CrestviewStrategy.ca. Evan Menzies, thanks so much for joining us here today. Much appreciated. Appreciate it. There you go. Evan Menzies, former communications director for the UCP, with uh, currently a campaign strategist with Crestview Strategy. So, look, I, I think he's, he's certainly more on the Kenny side of uh, whatever divide exists within the party or within conservatism.
But I think he makes some interesting points. Uh, I don't have a dog in this fight. I, I, I am of the opinion that Kenny can come back uh, just based on his track record as a political fighter. But it's interesting. I had this conversation recently with someone who I, I think is more invested in this as, as um, you know, a member of the UCB. But uh, is of the opinion that it's time for Kenny to go. So, I, I mean, I don't have an opinion one way or the other on that. It's up to UCP members to decide that. But we sort of had some back and forth. I said, no, nah, you know, I, I, think, I think Kenny can come back from this. I, I don't think his fortunes are sunk. Uh, but this person didn't agree. And it was interesting, too. And one of the, the chief complaints he brought up was, you know, the whole fair deal issue and standing up to the federal government. And it's another tricky balance for the premier because I think there are those, and certainly within the party or within, you know, conservatives in Alberta, is that Kenny hasn't been forceful enough. He hasn't been tough enough with Trudeau. And you got those in Alberta who say they've made too much of this. Like they've made such a big show of all of this fair deal stuff. It's, it's been a, a pointless distraction. And the premiers tried to walk a fine line to say, hey, we're, we're standing up. We have the equalization vote. But also recognizing that you need to get things done. You do need to have some kind of a productive relationship with the federal government. So I think all these areas where he's tried to you know, thread the needle, maybe he's, he's missed the mark. Anyway, your thoughts on that? Can Kenny survive? Are you hoping he does? Are you hoping he doesn't? Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.